The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll open in prayer as usual, have a few moments of silent prayer. But before we get started and before we pray, because somebody might just have to get back in fellowship after this, I thought I would show you a couple of pictures Somebody has too much time on their hands. I mean, that, that, let me just preface this. There's some people that, no matter how busy they are, they just manage to just have way too much time on their hands. So I wanted to show you some creativity here. I got this late this afternoon. I just, it's just perfect, per- perfect timing. But the next one's even better. <laughs> so, so somebody was obviously up way too much into the early morning to handle this. Okay, so we'll uh, Let's have a word of prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer in case you uh, need to get back in fellowship now, and then uh, I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for the tremendous uh, privilege that we have as believer priests under the high priesthood of our Lord Jesus Christ to come boldly before your throne of grace. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us that reveals your plan, your purposes, your grace, reveals salvation, your plan for our spiritual life. And Father, we thank you that we have God the Holy Spirit who is our teacher. He is our guide. He is the one who helps us to understand the word applied in our lives, brings it to memory so that we can apply it at the proper time and produces spiritual growth in our lives. Now, as we study these things, we pray that you would help us to have a tremendous perspective on, uh, from, on your word, your plan in history, and the significance of these uh, doctrines that we're studying related to the high priesthood of Christ, that it may uh, motivate us to greater uh, diligence and growth in our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The thrust of these next several chapters, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, into the dealing with the heavenly sanctuary, the uh, sacrifice of Jesus Christ, uh, chapters 9, 10, all start growing out of this discussion related to the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. This is really at the core of what the writer to Hebrews is is saying, that there is a superior priesthood in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's understanding that priesthood and how it functions, the significance of it while he is sitting in session at the right hand of God the Father, 
that is crucial to understanding the dynamics of the spiritual life today and what it's for, how it fits into God's plan for us and for history down through uh, the future ages. So we begin in chapter 5, continuing our study of the high priesthood of Christ, and chapter 1 begins with an explanation. The explanation is indicated by that first word for, which translates the Greek word gar, which always explains something that has been said already. And what has been said already focuses on the fact that we have a high priest, chapter 4, verse 14, who has passed through the heavens. Therefore, we are to hold fast our confession. Why? Because we don't have a high priest who's unsympathetic, but one who has been tested as we are yet without sin, so we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Now he's going to sort of backtrack a little bit to explain what goes on in terms of the appointment of a high priest going back into the, into the Old Testament in order to remind them of certain foundational realities about the Old Testament priesthood, which then becomes a backdrop for understanding what he will say in verses uh, 5 through 10, and leading up to a discussion on the high, priest, or, or the high priesthood of Christ as a Melchizedekian priest. To summarize these uh, 11 verses... We would say that, that the, th- the message in these 11 verses is that the high priest of Israel, Aaron, as a man on behalf of other man, or holds as a man on behalf of other man, holds his office from God. And so also Christ has been appointed a priest by God the Father. After a higher order, that of Melchizedek, and though he is the Son of God, though he is eternally the Son of God, He becomes, through suffering and prayers in the days of his flesh, the author of eternal salvation to us. That's the thrust. It's talking about the fact that just as Aaron was a priest in relationship to his race, in relationship to Israel, on behalf of Israelites, and held his office from God, so also Christ holds his office from God, and the appointment... For Jesus Christ was to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and though he is the eternal Son of God and eternal deity, he still has to go through suffering and prayer in his humanity uh, as preparation for his work on the cross and his present priesthood. That summarizes what's going on here. In terms of the, the major ideas that we see in these verses, they are... Uh, just a couple. First of all, the first three verses all revolve around that main verb that's given in verse 1, that every high priest is appointed by God. That's what the first three verses are all about, that the every high priest, and, it, and the focus of the first three verses is on the Levitical priesthood, and that every high priest is appointed by by God. Then in verses 5 and 6, we have a, two Old Testament quotes that aren't really expositions of those two, two verses at all. The two verses are simply quoted, which is typical in rabbinic type of quote, uh, quoting the Old Testament, to prove a very simple point, and that is that God appointed Jesus, Psalm 2-7, today you are my son, today I have begotten you, 
and Psalm 110.4, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He's not really expounding on what those verses are saying. He's just focusing on that one little narrow point that in those two verses we see that God appointed Jesus Christ. Just as Old Testament priests were appointed by God. And then there is a development of the significance of that in verses 7 through 8. And the main idea is in verse 8 that as a, though he was a son, he still had to learn obedience through the things that he suffered. And as he learned obedience, he was brought to maturity. That's what all ten verses summarized, brought down to just a basic level. That's, that's what this, this section is all about. It sets the stage. The whole thing is driving to one point, And that is that Jesus Christ is appointed, appointed a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he stops. And then he just, as it were, he turns around and verbally slaps him and says, But you can't handle this. And then he just gives him a hard rebuke for the next chapter and a half before he comes back to talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood. And why does he do that? Because they are, they are as, they are believers, but they, before they were believers, this group came out of the Levitical priesthood, and what they are doing is wanting to go back into Judaism, back into the function of their Levitical priesthood because of persecution, because of adversity, because of whatever the external circumstances are. They just want to give up Christianity and go back to Levitical, to the Levitical priesthood thinking that this is somehow superior. And so what he is doing in this, in chastising them is, telling them, you don't even understand the Old Testament scriptures and the significance of, the, of this priesthood over the priesthood of, of Aaron and the priesthood of the Levites and how uh, temporal and limited that priesthood is. And if you can't understand the superior priesthood of Melchizedek, you can't understand the significance of what's happening in the church age right, right now and what Jesus Christ is doing on your behalf, in session, at the right hand of God the Father. So quit trying to go back to the things that were under the Mosaic Law because they're simply a shadow of the reality that is in heaven. So, verses 1 through 4 focus on the human priesthood. So that's what we're going to focus on in our study this evening is to make sure we all have that background to understand what's going on under the Mosaic Law. So we'll begin in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men, this is presented as a normative standard principle. Of course, he's not talking about pagan priesthoods. He's not talking about uh, priesthoods in Greek religions or Egyptian religion. He's talking about the Levitical priesthood as set forth in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The main verb here, our finite verb that gives us the main action and the emphasis of the main subject, is kathistemi. Kathistemi means to assign someone a position of authority, to appoint them to a position, to put them in charge, to authorize or appoint, to set down, to to set, to set down, or to place. It's the idea of putting someone in a place of authority. 
It's a present passive indicative indicating that it has a, uh, an ongoing timeless result from the present tense. It's passive in that the priest receives the action of being appointed and the indicative mood indicates its reality. So every high priest taken among men is appointed uh, for men and things related to God. So God is the one who appoints them. And the purpose is then expressed in the last part of the verse, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices to sin, for sin. Now, you'll note that in your Bible, and most of your Bibles, especially if you're using New King James or King James, it's got a period at the end of that verse. But there's not, this isn't the end of the sentence. This is the verses 1 through 3 are, are, uh, are the whole sentence in the, in, the, um, in the Greek. And the reason that's important is, as I teach when I teach guys grammar, is that the basic unit of thought in language is a sentence. And a sentence expresses one idea, or if it's a compound sentence, it may express two ideas that are linked together. And you've got a couple ideas that are, that are presented here in the object clause. But what happened in, with the King James especially is there was a fundamental belief among the translators to try to make every verse a complete sentence. Well, what that does is if you take a verse, especially the one I love to quote is, is, is Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is one sentence in the Greek. That means there's one idea there. Uh, there's some of these modern translations will break that one idea down into th- as many as 13 sentences. Well, 13 sentences means there's 13 ideas. Now, did the Holy Spirit want to communicate one idea with secondary and tertiary supporting uh, clauses, or did he want to, want to express 13 ideas? So see, when you go to English translations where the translator's broken a sentence into 4, 8, 10, 15 sentences, then in the English we lose something about the structure of the author's thought. So things get lost in translation. But the focal point here in these first three verses comes off of this main uh, verb to a point. Everything else relates to this main idea that a high priest is appointed by God. And that high priest is appointed for men. And here we have the Greek preposition pair plus the genitive, which indicates substitution. We normally see this in relation to the substitutionary atonement that Christ died for man. But see, that relates to a priestly sacrifice and that's what the priests did so they they were appointed as a substitute for other men in the nation so that those in the and we're not talking about males per se but we're talking about all the people in the nation went to God through the priest who was their substitute their representative so a priest is appointed from among men he is a he has to be the same kind of of creature as that which he is representing. So he is appointed on behalf of or as a substitute for men and things pertaining to God. This is the Greek preposition pros, which means orientation towards someone. So this is the this is his role. It's restricted to the things that are oriented to God. He has a spiritual function. And then his purpose is that he may offer both gifts 
This has to do with sacrificial gifts and offering, free will offerings in the Old Testament, as well as sacrifices. And you have a vast array of different offerings and sacrifices in the Old Testament. You have burnt offerings, you have whole grain offerings, you have thank offerings. All these are brought under the category of these two words, gifts and offerings. So it focuses on the fact that the high priest is appointed for a purpose. He is the uh, substitutionary representative of the people. And his primary role is in presenting gifts and offerings to God. <clears throat> now, this sets us up for understanding and going back to the Old Testament teaching on priesthood. So, we're just going to break this down into a number of categories. One last grammatical point. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. Again, that's pair plus a genitive. The sacrifices are in, as substitution sins. Okay, first statement, first principle related to the priesthood is that there are three types of priesthood in the Old Testament, three types of priesthoods. The first was patriarchal, the second, the royal high priest, and the third, patriarchal, the royal high priest, which is represented by Melchizedek, and then the third was the Aaronic or Levitical high priest. The Aaronic or Levitical high priest is set forth in the Mosaic law. The patriarchal high priesthood, patriarchal high priesthood was indicated by Adam, Abel, Genesis 4-3, bringing sacrifices to God for, for himself, Noah, Genesis 8-20, bringing sacrifices to God uh, for the family, Job, Job 1.5, is giving sacrifices for his sons and daughters. He's very concerned about their spiritual welfare. Abraham, in Genesis 12.8, is offering sacrifices for the family. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, uh, is offering sacrifices as a patriarchal priest in Exodus 18.12. So you have lots of examples prior to the Mosaic Law of heads of households or individuals who are authorized to bring sacrifices uh, before God. The royal high priest was a distinct priesthood that is indicated by Melchizedek, and we don't have anything else on it in the Old Testament other than Melchizedek. He is royalty. He is the king priest over uh, Salem, which is uh, later called Jerusalem. His uh, name, Melchizedek, is probably a title, uh, king of righteousness, and not a personal name, and, and uh, he is a Gentile. So it is a, a priesthood that is superior to that that is restricted to only the, only the Jews under the uh, Mosaic law, and that's the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. So this just gives us an idea, framework for understanding these three priesthoods. The Aaronic Levitical priesthood is based only on their genetic relationship to Aaron and the tribe of Levi. There's no indication anywhere in the scripture that they have to be saved, that they have to be in right spiritual condition. None of that is there. They just have to be connected genetically to Levi and Aaron. Uh, Melchizedek, we don't understand what the dynamics were there, and patriarchal just relates to uh, any individual. The royal high priest, though, is, seems to be related to someone who is regenerate and someone who is saved. Okay, the second point. 
We talk about the development of this idea of priesthood in the Old Testament. After you talk about individual priesthood, when God calls out Israel as a nation and is bringing them out of, ex- out of uh, Egypt at the Exodus, he says that they are to be a, a kingdom of priests to him. So the whole nation is supposed to be a kingdom of priests. So God calls out, the second point, God calls out Israel to be a priest nation so that their role as a nation in relationship to all of the other nations is to be that intermediate, intermediary, that mediator nation between the other nations and, and God. Now, when did that happen? I don't think it happens in, and is truly fulfilled until you get to the millennial kingdom. We get into the millennial kingdom and all the nations, according to Isaiah 2, are going to come to the mountain of God to worship. All nations will come to Israel to worship, and it will be the uh, uh, priesthood at that time, the uh, sons of Zadok, which is part of, he's a descendant of Levi, descendant of Aaron, but it's going to be the Zadokite priesthood that takes care of the worship in the millennial temple. And so it is at that time that, that Israel finally fulfills her role as a priest nation. Now, Exodus 19.6 says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And the word holy there means a nation set apart to the service of God. So the whole nation was viewed as this corporate group that set apart to the service of God. Hosea 4.6, which comes towards the end of the Old Testament period, where there is the announcement of divine judgment because of their failure. In Hosea 4.6 we read, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And see, this same principle is true today, that the reason you have such problems in Christianity is because people are ignorant of the Word. And they become more and more ignorant of the Word. They're biblically illiterate, they're uh, doctrinally impoverished, and they're theologically challenged. And they don't care about it. And pastors don't care, but they're more concerned about getting more people in, and they're more concerned about uh, being a comfortable place where uh, people won't feel too uncomfortable, so they don't talk about sin, and they don't talk about uh, the things that uh, displease God, and they just talk about how wonderful everybody is, and let's just all have a, have a big group hug every Sunday morning and go home and be warm and be filled. So everybody's ignorant. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from what? From being a priest before me. So God rejects Israel from this position of priesthood because of their failure to fulfill the conditions of the Mosaic Covenant in the Old Testament. So they don't fulfill that until the future millennial kingdom when they are restored to the land. Third point, the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic high priesthood are then established by God within this priest nation. So you have a nation that is going to function as a priest, and then within that nation you have one tribe that is selected and chosen that is going to function as the priest tribe for the entire uh, nation. And this is set forth in Exodus chapter uh, 28, Exodus chapter 28. So let's just take a little while and just spend a little time flipping through some chapters in the Old Testament. 
I thought as I was putting this lesson together, I could go really fast through this, but that would assume that a lot of people understood their Old Testament. And most people just don't know the Old Testament. They, they wander around back there and they wonder who these people are, who those people are, and what's going on. So I thought, well, let's just take a little time and, and work our way through this and understand what, what the dynamics are. Exodus 28 is the first reference that we have to a high priest in the Old Testament. But it doesn't use the word high priest till we get over into Numbers. Uh, all we have here is a reference to Aaron as the priest. There's no mention of a high priest. In fact, that word high isn't even used in the Old Testament. You have the word great priest, that literally translated. It is the Gadol Kohen, the great priest. So the word for a priest is, is the word Kohen in Greek. So anytime you see a Jew who has a name that sounds like this, Kohen or Cowan, or anything like that, it is a form of the Greek word for priest, and they probably have Levitical ancestry. And they've been able to isolate a gene uh, today, a genetic marker, to indicate who is from the tribe of Levi, which, of course, will be important for being able to reestablish the priesthood during the, uh, well, when they have the apostate temple during the tribulation, They'll need it, but ultimately during the millennial kingdom. Of course, then you don't need it because you've got an omniscient Messiah sitting on the throne. He's going to know who's who's who. Uh, Exodus 28. This is where God appoints a priest. This is what we read in Hebrews 5.1. Every priest is appointed by God. This is where it takes place in Exodus 28. Now, take Aaron, your brother... And his sons with him from among the children of Israel, that he may minister to me as priest. Now that word minister as priest is the Hebrew verb kahan. See, a priest is a kohen, and he ministers as a kahan. That's the word. It means to, to function as a priest. So it's almost a redundant statement. The priest is going to uh, act as a priest, to function as a priest, serve as a priest. He will be from among the children of Israel. This is the same terminology we have in Exodus 5.1, that a priest is, cho- is appointed from among men, from among uh, specifically the children of Israel, that he may minister to me, serve me as priest. Aaron and Aaron's sons, and here we're, we have four sons identified, Nadab, Abihu, Eliezer, and Ithamar. And, of course, we're going to see a little rebellion that takes place in the family and things are not as simple. It's just great to watch this because Aaron's getting ready to just really mess up because while Moses is up getting the law, Aaron is going to lead the people into rebellion and fashion the golden calf and lead them in a big orgy. And it's going to, and then Moses is going to come down and have to discipline everybody. But is, is Aaron kicked out of the priesthood? No. He still stays priesthood. Then you have family problems. You know, everybody's got family problems. Well, he's got two kids that are rebellious, and they're going to lead a rebellion and get killed, and it just gets real messy when you get over into uh, numbers. And we'll look at that in a minute. So you have the establishment of the priesthood here, and they have specific garments that they wear. You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. So you shall speak to all her gifted artisans, whom I have filled with the Spirit, Note that phrase. This is not a filling of the Spirit that is related to their spiritual life. 
Remember in the book of Judges, you get people like Gideon who's filled with the Spirit. And what happens? Well, God, are you sure you want me to do this? Uh, let me put this fleece out here and just kind of see if I can figure out a way to come up with some conditions that are too hard for you to fulfill so I don't have to go to war against the Midianites. And then after he defeated the Midianites, he led the nation back into idolatry. He doesn't come across as real spiritual. Then you have Jephthah. Right after he's filled with the Spirit, he says, Lord, I'll sacrifice as a burnt offering whatever comes out of the front door of my house to meet me when, uh, when I come home after the war. Well, his daughter came, came out to greet him when he came home from the war, and he did unto her as he said. That's what the Scripture says. Now, there's a lot of squeamish Christians who don't like that and want to try to say, well, he, just, he didn't really want to kill her, so he just dedicated her as a perpetual virgin. But they didn't do that in Israel at that time. I mean, he just took her like any pagan, and he sacrificed her as a human sacrifice. Real spiritual. It really understands what's going on. Then you have Samson, and Samson's filled with the Spirit, and he's a, he's a womanizer and a, and a glutton, and he can't keep his vow. And Filling of the Spirit in the Old Testament doesn't have anything to do with what we think of as spirituality in the New Testament, spiritual maturity or spiritual growth. It had to do with the ministry of God the Holy Spirit to some sort of theocratic leader. Now, what do I mean by theocracy? I mean the kingdom of Israel, its function, its priesthood, the, the role of revelation through the prophets, leadership through Moses, leadership through the judges, leadership through the kings. It had to do with empowering certain people who had a critical function within the bureaucracy of Israel in order to enable them to... Uh, carry out their God-given task. Uh, Holy Ab and Bezalel are filled with the Spirit so they can make the, uh, the furniture and the, uh, the, the gold craftsmanship, doing, doing all the metal work and, and woodwork and everything inside the, inside the ta- uh, tabernacle. Uh, same thing with the artisans here. So you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans, and these are all of the tailors and those who are going to make all the garments, whom I have filled with the spirit of what? Wisdom. Now, this is another aspect here. Not only do they have the the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit is giving them wisdom. Now, you ought to be thinking, wisdom, huh? How does wisdom apply to being a tailor? How does wisdom apply to woodworking? How does wisdom apply to, to metalwork? How does wisdom apply to being a goldsmith or a silversmith or a jeweler? Well, that's because we need a little uh, retranslation here. The word translated wisdom is the Hebrew word chokmah, and that's a H-O-K-M-A-H, but the H is a guttural, chokmah, and it is the word that is primarily translated wisdom, but it gives us an understanding of what the Jewish concept of wisdom was. It's skill at doing something, and here we have skill at producing uh, physical uh, objects. It's an artistry so that they produce works of art in wood and in their garments and in the gold and the silver that has, has beauty and it has value and it brings out the whole aesthetic aspect here that is part of the Christian life because wisdom is the application of your basic principles 
of, of any kind of work, whether it's woodwork, whether it's carpentry, whether it's being a goldsmith or jeweler, whatever it may be, it's being able to take those basic principles that you learn, whatever the discipline is, and being able to create something of beauty, something that glorifies God, something that has, has tremendous artistic value to it. And, and there's something about aesthetics that a lot of Christians just don't understand. Uh, you know, you'll hear a lot of folks will say, well, we can have a church, let's just go put up a metal building. Well, that's great, but see, when God created things, He didn't just create things that were functional. He created a world of beauty. And aesthetics is part of our creativity as being in the image of God. And so when God is having the Jews build the, the tabernacle, it's not just enough to go out and, and, and build it from its basic structure. He wants everything to be artistic to be beautiful, to have, to reflect this aspect of man being in the image of God and a reflection of his being a creator. So they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him that he may minister to me as priest. And these are the garments, and then it goes on and, and describes the garments. It's a breastplate which had 12 stones on it, one for each of the 12 tribes. It had a, a an ephod which was a uh, a robe that he wore over that that hung down to about the mid-calf, sort of like a miniskirt, and then a, another tunic that went over that, and then there was a turban that he wore on his head that had a gold uh, <clears throat> plate on it that said, Holy or Set Apart to the Lord. And this was the uniform of the high priest, and on his epaulets he had uh, these two stones, and on each side were inscribed six tribes of Israel, six on one side, six on the other side, so that he is covered by the names of the, of the tribes of Israel as he goes into the tabernacle to represent them before God. So it's all about his role as a substitute priest for the, and a representative for the entire nation. And then in the rest of the chapter, it describes the ephod that he wears and how that should be made and the memorial stones that are on the ephod down in verse 12. And then a description of the breastplate and how it was to be made and the colors and the linen and everything down in uh, 15 and following. Then when we come over to, just flip over to chapter 29, we see how they are set apart and consecrated. That once they made the uniforms, then they had to initially consecrate them. And this meant that they had to be washed from head to toe. They had to, it was a baptism of sorts. There was a, it was a picture of complete cleansing that took place at the initial uh, part of the priesthood. It initiated them into the priesthood, setting them apart unto God. And that's what the, this complete washing was a picture of. Jesus uses that imagery in John chapter 13 when he is washing their feet. And you remember Peter said, well, Lord, you're not going to get down there and wash my feet. And, and the Lord said, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you won't have any part with me in my ministry. And what Jesus was saying, goes on to say, is that all of you were cleansed. You don't need, and then after that, Peter said, well, give me a whole bath. And Jesus said, no, you don't need a whole bath. That's already happened. You've already been cleansed from head to toe. And he uses the uh, Greek word that translated the washing here as luo, meaning a complete bath. So you don't need that. You've already had that, indicating you were already saved. You got that complete cleansing at salvation. Every believer is completely cleansed from all sin at the instant of salvation. So that sin is no longer 
uh, factor in terms of that eternal relationship with God. There's a complete cleansing. But afterward, there needs to be periodic ongoing cleansing because... Uh, the, and it's based on the imagery of the priest. Every time the priest would then function as a priest and go into the tabernacle or temple, he would have to go to the labor and he would have to wash his hands and he'd have to wash his feet. And that was a picture of the fact that we do things and we go places where we shouldn't. We violate the law, so there has to be cleansing before we can come into the presence of God and serve God. And so Jesus is picking up on that imagery in John 13, saying that this 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 issue of ongoing uh, cleansing, partial cleansing, and he used the Greek word nipto there, meaning a partial washing, is important for uh, ongoing service in the Christian life. And if we don't have that, then he 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 warns Peter that there won't be, you won't have a part in my ministry. And the word he uses for part there isn't the word that we think of as a role, like you're getting a part in a play, you have a role in a play. Uh, it's not. He's not talking about that. He's talking about you won't have an inheritance. It's the Greek word. Meros indicating uh, that portion of a will that designates the inheritance share going to the survivor. It's the same word that's used when the prodigal son comes to the father and says, I want my meros, I want my inheritance now. My share. So what Jesus is saying is to Peter is if you don't go through this ongoing cleansing, then you're not going to have an inheritance share in the kingdom. Because you're, everything you're going to do is going to come out of the sin nature. It's just going to be human good, and it's all going to get burned up at the judgment seat of Christ. So there has to be ongoing cleansing. Well, that imagery comes right out of Exodus chapter 29. So all of this goes back to the, an understanding of the appointment of the priest in the Old Testament and the setting apart of the priest in the Old Testament. So we see from Exodus chapter 28 that it is God who chose and appointed Aaron as priest. The next point, point number four, is that the priesthood is restricted by God. It's only for Aaron. It's only for the descendants of Aaron. God says it's not for everyone, and there is a restriction there. Uh, Numbers 18.7, Therefore you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything at the altar and behind the veil, and you shall serve. I, I, shall give, I give your priesthood to you as a gift of service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Oops. Any other priest who comes in, anyone who tries to function as a priest who's not a descendant of Aaron is going to be, be put to death. And this happened on several occasions, as we'll see in the Old Testament. God had to make it very clear that he, his rules were not to be uh, violated. Only those who were designated as priests could make atonement for sin. A, someone just couldn't go in and, and offer sacrifice for just anyone. For example, a, a Psalm 65 verse 3 Psalmist writes, uh, speaking for God, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, you will provide atonement for them. And the context is talking to the uh, Levitical priests. In Exodus 29, verse 36, instructions directed to Aaron, you shall offer a bull every day as a sin offering for atonement. And the word there for atonement, kafar, has that idea of cleansing from sin. You shall cleanse the altar when you make atonement for it, and you shall anoint it to sacrifice it. So the, only the priests 
could make atonement for sin. So what we've seen is that God appointed the priesthood. God says it's only going to be through Aaron and his sons. And the purpose for the priesthood, or the ultimate purpose, is for atonement. There's other purposes which we'll look at in just a minute. Now, point number five. As the representative of the twelve tribes, the substitute of the twelve tribes, Aaron wore the names of the twelve tribes inscribed on his shoulders and breastplate. So the names were on the epaulets, the stones on his shoulders and his breastplate, which indicate that he is bringing all of them uh, before the Lord. Exodus 28, uh, 21. I mean, Exodus 28, 12, which we looked at already. Exodus 28, 21. And the stone shall have the names of the sons of Israel, 12 according to their names, uh, like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. And Exodus 28:29, so Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart when he goes into the holy place. So all of this had tremendous symbolic value indicating he was their representative. Sixth, what were his responsibilities? What is the role of a priest? What did a priest do? Well, first of all, the priest was to oversee the sacrifices and the offerings at the tabernacle. His role was to uh, oversee all of the tabernacle and temple services. Deuteronomy 18.5, For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand to minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons forever. So this was a designation to Aaron and his descendants. Also, a priest was to pray for the nation. A priest was to pray for the nation, not just to bring sacrifices and offerings, but to pray for the nation. Joel chapter 2, verse 17, gives their prayer. Let the priests who ministered to the Lord weep between the porch and the altar. Let them say, this is a prayer, spare your people, O Lord. They were to intercede for the people. This is what the Lord is doing as part of his high priestly duties at the right hand of God the Fathers. He's interceding for us. So the Old Testament priest was to intercede for the nation in praying for the nation, Joel 2.17. Furthermore, they were to teach the law, to teach the law to the people. This is indicated in two verses, Leviticus 10, verse 11, that you may teach the children of Israel all the statutes which the Lord has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. So they were the Bible teachers throughout Israel, and they would travel. They didn't have their own land. They didn't have their own inheritance portion in the, in the land of Israel because they were to minister to the whole nation. They were to travel and to teach the word. Malachi 2.7, there is an indictment of the priesthood in that chapter, and the reason for the indictment is because they weren't teaching. And so we get the principle in Malachi 2.7, For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So he taught the word. He's a messenger from the Lord, but in a different way from a prophet. A prophet was basically functioned like a prosecutor who was charging the people, indicting them for failure to... Uh, failure to follow the Mosaic law. So the prophet's role was directly related to, to making statements either positive or negative in relationship to the fulfillment of the law. One of the things that's really hit home to me in the last years I've been teaching this Old Testament survey course is that in the Old Testament you look at books like Joshua, uh, Judges, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 
Now, in the English Bible, we talk, talk about those books as being part of history. They're part of the historical section of the Old Testament. And that makes sense to us. But in the Hebrew Bible, there's three sections to the Hebrew Bible. There's the Torah, the first five books. There's the Nevi'im, the prophets. And then there's the Ketuvim, the writings. And Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are all part of the prophets. They're part of the former prophets. Now, we think of prophecy too much in terms of foretelling the future or for bringing an indictment of God against the nation, because that's what happens under the latter prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah, uh, Malachi, uh, Zechariah, all of the, the, the 12 uh, minor prophets are bringing indictments against Israel because they have failed to fulfill the Mosaic Law. But what do you see in Joshua? How is Joshua a prophet? Because Joshua is showing how the people obeyed the law and God gave them victory over the Canaanites and blessed them. Then again, then what happens in Judges? Judges is a picture of their failure to uh, obey God, their failure to apply the law. The nation falls apart in complete anarchy because everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes and there's no central government. Because there's no central government, there is anarchy and everything falls apart. So you can't have a society where you really trust people to be their own authority because it's going to fall apart. There has to be government. God instituted government even though there's failures in government. Government is a divine institution, and even when you have flawed governments, such as in the Roman Empire, uh, in, in Greece, or in various human kingdoms, it's still the institution that God has established for the order and preservation of mankind. Man is going to fail even under government. Every institution is going to ultimately fail because of sin. But the institutions, when they're applied correctly, do give stability to a nation. So God puts... Uh, the, 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 the priests are to pray for the nation, and they are to teach the law, and then fourth, they are to be an example of personal sanctification. They're to be an example to the others of spiritual growth and advance to spiritual maturity. Deuteronomy 33.9 is addressed to Levi, starting in verse 8. In verse 9 says, Who says of his father and mother, I have not seen them, nor has he acknowledged his brothers or nor his children, for they have observed your word and kept your covenant. And the focus of this verse is to simply say that, that the, 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 the priest who is obedient to, the, to his calling is going to put spiritual priorities above even family. And they will uh, be an example in obedience to the word and keeping the covenant. Now, the anointing of the priest is then described in Exodus 29, which we looked at already, in Leviticus chapter 8 and 9. In fact, if you want to, you can turn over there to Leviticus with me. Leviticus 8 and 9 gives us the regulations for the priesthood. And this is another account of the consecration uh, setting apart of Aaron and his sons at the initiation of their ministry. Chapter 8 describes the uh, consecration, and chapter 9 describes the, the beginning of their ministry. And so at their consecration, there's not only this full bath, but there's also uh, burnt offerings, uh, which are consecration offerings, that are given in order to indicate the atonement on their behalf. 
and then their priestly ministry begins, and there's other offerings given at that time. Uh, on the eighth day, there's sin offering, burnt offering, peace offerings, grain offerings. All of the Levitical offerings are given at that time to indicate the, that they are set apart. Aaron and his family are set apart as a priest. So that begins the institution of the Aaronic priesthood. The duties of the Levites are then described in uh, Numbers 18, 1 through 9. Numbers 18, 1 through 9. So we're going to... Uh, I want to do, look at a couple of background things that happen after the initiation of... Aaron, before you leave Leviticus 9, just look at chapter 10. After all this has taken place, after the consecration of Aaron and his family as priests, after all that has been done, and you have all of this ceremony and all of this ritual and all of these sacrifices and the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and all the other offerings, and this goes on for over a week, then after all of that, you have his a rebellion takes place in his family with his two of his sons, Nadab and Abihu. And we read about this in chapter 10 of Leviticus. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. What that means by profane fire is this isn't the the, uh, incense that has been authorized by God to be presented by Aaron and his family in the right way. So they're thinking that they can define the relationship with God on their own terms. Then why is it so exclusive? Why is it that Jesus is the only way? Well, we've got a good way. You know, we have good fire. Our matches work just as good as anybody else's. Why can't we do it? And so God has to put an end to this at the very beginning. And fire goes out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. I would just love to see some good special effects on this. I mean, this must have been incredible. I mean, some of the things that took place in these these judgments of God on the rebellious Jews, you'd think you'd get the lesson that you've got to get a little authority-oriented uh, pretty quick, but all through this period, they are rebelling against the priesthood of Aaron. They just don't like Aaron. They don't like Moses, and everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes, basically. So Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke to me. This is uh, Leviticus 9 or Leviticus 10.3. By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy... And before all the people, I must be glorified. And they were coming to before God in an inappropriate way without the proper cleansing and consecration. Same thing that happens with believers who are out of fellowship. It, it, it's treating God as if you can just come to God and have a relationship with him on your terms rather than his terms. So that gives a little background. This happens early on, right after the consecration of Aaron and his sons. Then we have another rebellion a little later on as they're uh, going through uh, the wilderness. This occurs before Kadesh Barnea in chapter 16 of Numbers. Numbers chapter 16. So just turn over from Leviticus to the next book, Numbers. Excuse me, this comes after Kadesh Barnea. That was in chapter 15. So now there's a a further rebellion. You would think after God prohibited them from going into the land that they would get the point, but now, but they don't. And, uh, and that's just a picture of all of us. We are all a lot more like this than we like to think. 
Now Korah, the son of Ejar, the son of Kohath, the son of Levi, with Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. So they are Levitical, but they are not Aaronic. Only Aaron can go into the Holy of Holies and his descendants. With Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the, and on the son of Peleth, took men, and they rose up before Moses and some of the children of Israel, and they lead a revolt of 250 leaders, thinking that we have as legitimate a way to get to God as anybody else. Our way is a good way. All roads lead to God. All paths lead to God. So God's going to honor us for our sincerity. Hmm. So they gathered together in revolt against Moses and Aaron. And Moses is, I just love it. Moses heard it. He fell on his face. We're going to see some more fireworks from, from God. And he warns them that God will show tomorrow morning. God will show that he is holy. And who's authorized to come before him and who's not. So he says, okay, you guys want to go before God, so take your censers, put fire in them, put incense in them, just like uh, the earlier uh, revolt we read about in Leviticus 10, come in and uh, come before God. So they did that, and again, God judges them, wipes them all out, and then as a result of that, he brings a judgment on the people. But that's not enough for God just to wipe out the, just to wipe out Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. I mean, he wipes out their families, he wipes out their tents, he just basically blots out anything that they've touched. That's described later in the chapter. But the next day, when we get down to verse 41, on the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron again, saying, you have killed the people of the Lord. It's just like, well, what, what part of divine judgment don't you understand? I mean, people are just stubborn in their sin. We, you know, that's what I like about the scriptures. We just get a high view of who we are and how... Uh, how obedient we are, and this just is a picture of the fact that we're really not. So it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. Suddenly the cloud covered it, the glory of the Lord appeared, and the wrath goes out, and Moses calls upon Aaron to put a censer of fire before the altar in order to stop this plague that goes out. But before that gets done, 14,700 get killed in this particular rebellion. But that's not the end of it. So you'd think you'd get the point. But it just keeps going. And so they, they have questioned the authority of Aaron. And it is at this point that he tells Aaron to take his staff, that's his rod, to take his staff and put it into the tent of meeting along with these other leaders who were vying for this authority. And God is going to create a miracle the next day. And overnight... The dead stick is going to produce life. That's the picture. God brings life where there is death, and God is going to bring life in this dead stick to indicate that Aaron is his choice. So once again, Aaron, Aaron is, is, is chosen and appointed, and it's clear that this is God's choice. But Aaron is going to revolt against Moses again, and that's going to be the reason he's not allowed to go into the promised land but God doesn't remove the priesthood from Aaron or from his family. Now, the last point we're going, I'm going to make is that 
the term that is used to describe Aaron that we use, the term high priest, is in, in the Hebrew is really the term great priest. And the first place that term is used is in Numbers 35, 25, and 28. But when we come to Jesus, he is the great high priest. We have an, uh, an added term there to indicate his superiority to all of the Old Testament great priests. So Hebrews chapter 5 verse 1 talks about just reminding us of the basic principle, which was clear to the, to the uh, original recipients of this letter because they're all former Levitical priests, that every high priest is appointed by God for men in things related to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the point that is being made is God appoints the high priest. And he has to have the same nature, the same makeup as those whom he represents. And the reason for that is then developed in the next uh, couple of verses, and we'll get there next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to be challenged by these things as we recognize that, that just as the Jews were rebellious and sinful, so we are t- much more than we think and that there is accountability within the royal family of God, and there's also rewards and blessing, just as there was a reward for obedience in Israel, the reward of entry into the land, which is a picture of our future entry into the millennial kingdom. And those of us that press on to the uh, to spiritual maturity are ones who will ultimately rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests in the millennial kingdom. May we keep that thought before us to motivate us so that we don't get overwhelmed by the details of life and the circumstances of, of everyday, uh, everyday pressures and adversity, and we may focus on what everything is ultimately all about. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.